We appreciate Bryce reading the scripture and doing the singing. He is truly the five-talent man. And so we're grateful for him, all the great work he did at camp along with Christian. Appreciate everybody's presence tonight. Sometimes you read a book or maybe you watch a show and things begin to come to an end. And maybe you're anticipating that end, but you find yourself left on a cliffhanger and maybe you're disappointed. But when you come to the last page of the Bible, that disappointment really isn't there. When I come to the last page of the Bible, I'm impressed. I'm encouraged. I'm left anticipating and really encouraged to go back to the beginning and start all over again. The Bible introduces God to us as the creation and the Bible ends by introducing God to us as also our redeemer and our savior. When you get through reading the Bible and you get to the end in Revelation 22, we're impressed with all that God has done and all that he is to us in as he's related related to us in Scripture. You could say that the Bible is a story. The Bible begins by talking about the fall of man and sin of man, and it ends by talking about man's redemption. Now, when we say story, we don't mean story in the fictional sense, like Little Red Riding Hood or the Three Little Pigs, but we do mean a true account of historical a narrative of biblical truth, and that's what we have in the book of Revelation. Every page of the Bible is important. But when we get to the last page, we see its great significance and importance. As you start making your way through the book of Revelation, you get to chapter 20, chapter 21, and when you finally get to Revelation 22, there's this grand realization that everything that hasn't been said, that needs to be said, will have to be said in this chapter, and whatever is not said won't be. When John puts down his pen for the final amen in Revelation 22, 21, there's no more revelation coming. There'll never be another inspired apostle or prophet to write anything. And so it's with great anticipation that we approach the last page of Scripture. All Bible truth is important. But in Revelation 22, as John wraps up inspiration, he gives us some final things to consider. If you had a loved one who left a will... And the whole family was gathered together to see what this loved one had left behind. You would listen in with great anticipation. And the New Testament is often called the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And it's with that same anticipation and more that we should approach Revelation chapter 22. And so if you have your Bible tonight, be turning to that page. Revelation 22. Again, all Bible truth is important, but as you get to the last page of the Bible, there are some truths that God reemphasizes, some threads that have run throughout Scripture. But now as God is wrapping up Revelation, he draws some things to a close. Before we begin in Revelation 22 tonight, I want to say the book of Revelation is difficult to read. It doesn't matter how much Old Testament you know. It doesn't matter how much first century history you know. Any humble Bible student must admit that the book of Revelation is difficult to get a full grasp on. And none of us really can say that we fully understand everything that's going on. So before we start tonight, I just want to give you a few tips for reading Revelation responsibly. And maybe you could go to the front of your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, and write these tips at the heading. So the next time you read the book of Revelation, you would keep at least these introductory things in mind, these few little principles and tips as you approach the book of Revelation. The first one is this. The book of Revelation is about things, according to John, that were shortly going to come to pass. In Revelation chapter 1, John says this, and he says it again in Revelation 22, 6. And so when we read the book of Revelation, we shouldn't assume that John is writing about World War III or COVID-19 or American politics. John doesn't say those are the things that he's writing about. He's writing to people in the first century context who are suffering under Roman persecution. And he tells them, the things that I'm writing about must shortly be done or shortly come to pass. Here's number two. John writes what we call apocalyptic literature. 
John writes apocalyptic literature. If you look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, that last phrase in the New King James and the King James American Standard, New American Standard, it says something along these lines. The things that have been signified. The ESV says the things that John has been shown. That means it would be difficult and a headache to try to read everything in the book of Revelation and make it apply literally. No, John wrote in signs and some symbols. Now, everything that John wrote in the book of Revelation is true. But John expressed that truth through signs and through symbols and through impacted speech and these Old Testament images. And so as we approach the book, we should appreciate the type of literature we are reading. It's apocalyptic literature. Here's tip number three. It's a blessing to read it and to obey its words. Christians have sometimes said, I don't read the book of Revelation. It's difficult. It's a challenge. But in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, John says, Blessed is everyone who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and obeys the things which are written therein. John says it's a blessing, and we rob ourselves of that blessing if we don't read the book, if we don't open it up and read it. Now, John in Revelation 1, 3 is talking about an assembly sort of like ours, where the book will be open and read before the masses. And he says, when you do that, and when you hear it, and then when you obey it, You'll be blessed. And every time you get to the book of Revelation, you should be saying to yourself, to the degree that I read this book and obey it, John assures me that I'll be blessed. And here's the last one. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John wrote seven churches in Asia. Revelation 1 and verse 4. John wrote to churches. This letter was to be circulated among these churches and it was to be passed around and then copied down and preserved so that we could read and study it tonight. We shouldn't think of Revelation as a book of signs and codes that no one was meant to unlock. The very word itself means that which is unveiled. John wasn't writing to confuse us. He was writing to remove the confusion. And proof of that is that he wrote it to seven churches. People like me and you that could open up this book and read it. And to see that ultimately, no matter what else you lose in the book, if you walk away from the book knowing that God is ultimately going to win and everybody on God's side wins as well, you've gotten the gist of it. You've gotten the most important part. And if you're on God's side, that makes you a winner as well. Now we're ready for Revelation chapter 22. What does John say in the last chapter of this book that will help us to be God's people in the weeks to come and throughout our lives? Six eternal lessons from the last chapter or the last page of the Bible. Number one. The curse will be removed. John starts bringing his letter to a close in Revelation 21. He speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. He speaks of a bride in Revelation 21 and verse 9. He speaks of a city in Revelation 21, 15. And then he takes that up in Revelation 22, 1 and 2. And he uses this garden imagery. There's this garden that's been prepared. And then when you get to Revelation 22 and verse 3, he says, there is no more cursed or the accursed things are gone. He saw. One who sits on the throne and the lamb and his servants worshiping him. Number one, on the last page of the Bible, we realize one day the curse will be removed. Now, John's language of a curse ultimately being removed goes back to Zechariah 14 and verse 11, where Zechariah prophesies about a curse being removed. But if you're familiar with the Bible, you know, it goes back even further than that. Think Genesis chapter three. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned and violated God's will, God hands down punishments and cursings. The ground is cursed, Genesis 3.17. Adam is punished with hard labor, and the ground will no longer easily cooperate with him as he does his work, Genesis 3.17-19. Eve would know hardship and travail as she gave birth to children and women that will follow after her, Genesis 3.16, and they were cut off from the tree of life, Genesis 3.22-24. But when we get to the Bible's last page, God's making all things 
Right, and the Bible says the curse will be removed. The reason why the curse can be removed is because the lamb that's mentioned in Revelation 22 and verse 2. He's the one who's worthy to open the book. Revelation 5 and verse 5. He's the one that can change the circumstances. You remember what John called in John chapter 1 and verse 29 when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized? He said, behold, the lamb of God who does what? takes away the sin, or you could say the curse of the world. That's what Jesus came to do. And Revelation closes by saying he accomplished his mission. And one day it'll be realized in its fullness and in its totality. But John says more. Not only will one day the curse be removed, but would you look at the text in verse 4? John says one day we'll see him face to face. Now Moses, a great, as great a man as he was, we're told in Exodus 33, 18 through 20, he was incapable of seeing God face to face. God said, no man can see my face and live. John 1, 18, John says, no man has ever seen God at any time. And we might parenthetically insert, not yet, because John says one day we will see him face to face. And the reason we will be able to do so is because the curse has been lifted. The curse has been removed. In verse 5, he says, no more son. No more moon, no more light, because God will be there and he will be the light. Revelation 22 and verse 5. On the last page of the Bible, God finishes what he starts by saying, I'm going to remove the curse. We live in a world with 24-hour news, and most of it is bad news. Wouldn't you agree? And we sometimes say that the gospel is the good news, and for good reason. Our sins can be forgiven. We can become a part of God's family, the church, but also looking forward beyond this life. We can look forward to a time when the curse is ultimately removed. All we've ever known is this broken world, this world with all of its problems and its thorns and its thistles. But that doesn't stop what John writes in Revelation 22 and verse 3 from being true. The day is coming, according to John, where the curse will be removed. No more lies. No more need to lock your doors or carry a weapon. No more bad thoughts or bad looks. John says one day everything that's corrupt and everything that's wrong is going to be removed. And God wouldn't close out the Bible without reminding us of this great reality in a world that's filled with curses and punishment and suffering and revelation, especially on this point of God's people suffering. John doesn't finish his book without saying it's only temporary. God is going to remove the curse. And the way that he does it surprisingly is Jesus became a curse for us. Galatians three and verse 13. But the last page in your Bible reminds us all That God is removing the curse. Now, here's number two. Obedience is rewarded. Anybody familiar with the Bible, the other 65 books of the Bible, knows this elementary principle. I guess you could call this kindergarten spirituality, right? If you do what God says, you'll be rewarded. If you disobey, you'll be punished. And the last page of the Bible says the very same thing. Notice Revelation 22 and verse 7. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed are those that keep the words of this prophecy. And then in verse 14, John says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Or if you have the King James or New King James, it says, blessed are those that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life and enter into the gates within the city. The second thing we see on the last page of the Bible is that God rewards individuals who do what he says. God blesses those individuals that obey him. This is how the book of Revelation begins, but it's also how the book ends. You remember Revelation 1 and verse 3? Blessed are those that read aloud the words of this prophecy and that keep the things that are written therein. And then he ends the book with this. Whenever you read a New Testament book and there's a thought at the beginning and a thought at the end, God is trying to book in that idea that among the many things the book of Revelation teaches, it teaches this. No matter what happens, you make sure that you obey, because if you do, 
God is going to reward you. John says, blessed are those that do his commandments because God has a reward. This is interesting. God doesn't owe us anything for doing what he commands. We should obey God just for the very fact that he's God. He deserves to be obeyed for that reason and that reason alone. But the New Testament says when we obey him, God blesses us. There have been people in the past that thought that they were blessed just because they heard the word of God, just because they could hear it read. And the Bible challenges that idea. Romans 2.13, the Bible says in Romans 2.13, it's not the hearers of the law that are justified, but the doers. Or James 1.22, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers, lest you deceive your own selves. And here John says, that's right. If you want to be God's person, you've got to obey him. Sometimes this falls on hard times. And you may hear this more and more in Christian circles, sometimes even in the church. We're not just supposed to be rule keepers. Listen, Christianity is about far more than keeping rules alone, but it's not any less than that. Nobody is God's friend who doesn't obey him and do what he says. Look at Revelation 22 and verse 12. Jesus says the same thing. I'm coming soon. My reward is with me to reward those who do command. The last page of the Bible says God wants us to obey him. Now, all the Bible needs to be obeyed. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command, John 15, 14. If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. He's the author of everlasting salvation to all them who obey him, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. None of us can obey the parts of the Bible we like the best and leave the others out. But Revelation 22 is specific. Look at verse 7. John says, blessed are those that keep the words of this prophecy. There's a specificity about obeying certain things in the book of Revelation. And so we should be asking ourselves, what are those things? If you obey all the Bible, you'll be blessed. But John says specifically, blessed are those that keep the words of this prophecy. That means there are things in Revelation that we need to hold fast to. And when we do, we're God approved and we're God blessed. What things? Maybe if we look at our individual lives and the congregation as a whole, when we find things that are wrong, Revelation 2 and verse 5, repent and turn back to our first love. When you do that, you'll be blessed. As individual Christians, Revelation 2 and verse 10 says, be faithful even as death hovers over you and I'll give you a crown of life. When we obey that, when we do that, the Bible says we'll be blessed. When we hear the word of God and not only hear it, but hear it with the intention of following through Revelation 13 and verse nine, John says those that have ears to hear, let them hear, but also let them comply. When we do that, we're blessed individuals. When we follow the lamb wherever he goes, Revelation 12, verse 11, believe on God and keep his commandments. Revelation 14, 11 and 12. When we do those things, we're blessed. The last page of the Bible says God wants us to do what he says and to follow him. And when we do, there's a reward held out for us. You remember when the devil came into the presence of God in Job chapter one and in Job one, nine and ten, he says "Does Job fear God for not. That is, does Job follow God for nothing? And the 42 chapters really play out the answer to that question. Would Job obey God if God didn't give him anything else? And God says, let's take everything away from Job and see. Of course, Job passes the test. Job served God for nothing. And every one of us needs that same mentality where we would serve God if we didn't get another thing. But here's the good news. The Bible says that's not true. If we do what he says, we will be rewarded. There will be a blessing and we will be blessed for doing so. Jesus says, I always do the things which please my father. John eight twenty nine. None of us can say that. 
But the God we serve doesn't demand sinless and perfect obedience. He just demands persistent effort on our part. And the last page of the Bible, John's wrapping up not only his book, but the entire revelation of Scripture. And he says, I just want to remind you one more time. When you do what God says, you'll be rewarded. Here's number three. God alone is worthy of worship. John's overwhelmed, just like you would have been. I don't know. We get the idea sometimes that people that saw these amazing things in the Bible, they saw them all the time. They were never impressed. John puts that to rest two times in the book of Revelation. As John sees the things that he sees, dragons and rainbows and beasts and all the things going on, John's just overwhelmed. The first time's in Revelation 19 and verse 10, and he falls down before this angel to worship. And the angel says, don't do that. Worship God. And as the book is ending. John has saw all of these great things and Revelation 22, 8 says, when I heard the things and saw the things and I saw him which showed me the things and spoke them to me, I fell down at his feet to worship. And he said, don't do it, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets and those who worship and serve God. And then Revelation 22, 9 says, worship God. The last page of the Bible says that God alone is worthy of worship. Not angels, according to Revelation. Angels aren't worthy of worship. Not men. When Peter came to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius was impressed. Never had a Jew in his quarters like he did with this great apostle, and he fell down at Peter's feet. And Peter said in Acts 10, 25, and 26, get up and stand on your feet. I, too, am a man. The last page of the Bible says God is the only individual that is worthy of our worship. God's the only one before whom we should bow. He's the only one who is worthy of our adoration. And we need to keep that in our minds. We are all human beings, all created in the image of God. Acts 14, 15 says we're men of like nature. We shouldn't worship humans. We shouldn't even worship angels. Psalm 8 and verse 5 says we're just a little bit lower than them. But God's the only one up high enough that in his presence we should bow. The Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Isaiah 45, 23. Jesus is highly exalted that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven and in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And as John is closing the Bible, he says, remember, you by nature, by the very fact that you're a human, we are worshipful beings. We will worship someone or something. John says, get your attention focused on worshiping God. You remember the devil tempted Jesus and he tried to get him. To fall down and worship him. He promised him glory. And Jesus says, depart from me, Satan. It's written, you'll worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. And John says, I just want to remind you, never bow to anyone or anything but God. This temple is called the Karnamata. It's in India. It's a Hindu temple. The story behind the temple is, according to the legend, there's this sage warrior. A woman named Karni Mata, and she had a son who went to a lake to drink. And when he got to the lake to drink, he drowned. She begged the gods to bring him back to life. At first, they declined. But finally, they said, okay, we'll bring him back to life. Not only him, but all of your sons who've died. But there is a catch. They'll be reincarnated as rats. And so, at the Karni Mata temple, there are 25,000 black rats. And people from all over the world flock there all the time in order to worship these black rats. Not only that, but they feel that it's sacred and impressive if you get to eat some of the food that the rats have nibbled on. Because they feel like this is sacred and holy ground. And we say, that's nasty. 
That's silly. And that's disgusting. But that's not just true because it's not the idol of our choice. God says that about every idol before whom we bow. Humans are always bowing to things that are lower than them. Romans 1 and verse 25, Paul says, we worship sometimes and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Oh, they do it with rats who are unworthy of their worship. But sometimes we do it with so many other things. We bow and worship culture. And as impressive and as much of a blessing as our culture is, it's unworthy of our worship. God would say, get up, don't bow. Sometimes we worship our careers and our jobs and God says to us, hey, I blessed you with those things. And those things are meant to provide for you and others and to enrich your lives. But don't bow. And we love our country and the freedoms we've been afforded. And we say, you know what? God bless America. And that's true in every other nation under the sun. God says as much of a blessing as these United States are, she's unworthy of your worship. Get up. Don't bow. And anything else that we want to put on God's clothes and let it play God for a day, God says the same thing that the angel said to John. On the last page of the Bible, God reminds us there's only one person worthy of worship. Joshua says, choose you this day whom you'll serve. You remember that? Whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood in Egypt or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those very words in Joshua 24 may be being quoted by Jesus or at least the background behind his words in John 4, 24, when he says God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is jealous for his worship. And he won't give it away to anybody else. Isaiah 42 and verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, my glory is mine, and I will not share it with another. God won't even come in a tie with you and me in first. With God is first place or no place. And every time he sees us bow before something or someone else, no matter how noble, no matter how pristine, no matter how much we think it's virtuous, Revelation 22 reminds us, worship God alone. Now, here's number four. God is the Alpha and the Omega. The book of Revelation begins this way in Revelation 1 and verse 8. John mentions it again in Revelation 21 and verse 16. And now it's here. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Sometimes Bible students say Jesus began in the New Testament and somebody says, I've got an objection to that. Jesus actually begins an Old Testament prophecy. In fact, all the way back, just keep going back. Go back past Malachi and even past Isaiah. Go back before the kings. In Genesis 3.15, you can find a prophecy about Jesus. John says, go back further than that. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. So if there's a Genesis chapter 0, you just put Jesus there. That's where Jesus is. He's in the beginning with the Father and with the Spirit. He's eternal. When Moses is at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14 and he says, who will I say sent us and who will I go for? And God says, I am that I am. That's who you'll say sent you. And Jesus quotes those words in John 8 and verse 58. He's saying, that's about me. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. John 14, 8 and 9. And John closes the Bible by saying, don't forget, Jesus is Alpha and Omega. Sometimes we use this point, this reality, to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God and they need to turn to him and serve him. That's right. In fact, that same apologetic, that same argument is used throughout the book of Acts. Jesus is God. and He's worthy of worship and submit to him in order to be saved. That's true. But here's the question. As you read through the book of Revelation and then your eyes fall on these words in 22.13, you've got to be wondering. 
Surely that's not John's point here because these people are already Christians. John's writing to the seven churches in Asia. Surely they know Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. So why tell them? It's for the same reason we need to hear it. Because we live in a world where it seems like someone else is in charge. Evil's running and ruling the day. And John says that's not true. We serve the one who knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46 and verse 10. We serve the one who is Alpha and Omega. That's the God who died on the cross for our sins. More than just a good man. He's the one that rules and runs the entire world. Nothing catches him by surprise. He knows man and he knows what's in man. John 2, 24 and 25. I don't know what you're going to face this week and you don't either. But here's what you do know. No matter what it is, you serve the Alpha and the Omega. He's already there. Wherever we're going into, whatever we're going to face, Jesus Christ is already there. John's writing to people that are suffering. And it seems like Rome's really in control, like Caesar is Lord. And he says, don't fall for it. He says, you know what? Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. So when you pull up to shells and gas is eight dollars, I don't want to disappoint you. Just remember, Jesus is Alpha and Omega. When bills pile in and you say, I don't know how we're going to do this. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. When you get to the doctor and you don't hear what you want or maybe you're scared about what you're going to just remember, no matter what else happens, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Raising children. Neil talked about it this morning in this confusion that we sometimes face, this struggle. Are we getting it all right? Doing the best we can. How are things going to turn out? We put our hands to the plow. We do the best we can. And we realize that we serve the one who's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And if he's with us, doesn't matter what we face. Doesn't matter the opposition. Because with Christ, we're victorious. Here's number five. God is inviting. The spirit and the bride say come. And the one who hears, let him come. And the one that's thirsty, let him come and drink from the waters of life freely. This grand invitation. This passage in Revelation 22:17 is in line with all the other whosoever passages in the Bible. You can think of these. Acts 2:21, the first gospel sermons preached. And Peter says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, and he says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that, what's the next part of that? Whosoever believes on him might not perish, but will enjoy everlasting life. The Bible says God has predetermined that everybody that chooses him will be accepted, but he has not predetermined who will accept. And so the invitation is for everybody. And the last thing God does before he closes out the Bible is he says, there's going to be a party and I want you to come. Blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 and verse 9. Many will come from the east and the west. Matthew 8 and 11. The north and the south. Luke 11 and verse 29. God says, I want everybody to be there. I want everybody to be invited and to come and to partake and ultimately to enjoy. Would you look at verse 17 again? The spirit and the bride say come. God's inviting, but God's enlisted us as those that are to get the invitations out. The spirit and the bride, we join in with heaven and we say to the rest of the world, God's requested your presence. Everybody on earth is on heaven's most wanted list. God wants everybody there. God wants to invite everybody. God says, I want you to be present. I want you to come. Shutterfly says that if you're going to have a party, you should send out your invitations. They say the sweet spot is right at three weeks before your event. 
They say you can wait as close as two weeks before or you can start back as early as six weeks before. Let me ask you this. How long has God been sending out his invitations? For some 2,000 years. People walk by it in Walmart. They ignore it. They slam the door on it during campaigns and invitations. They sit through worship services like this one and hear song after song, plea after plea, and they say, no, thank you. I don't want anything to do with it. Nobody has ever been turned down more than God. God says all day long, I've stretched forth my hands to an obstinate and disobedient people, Romans 10, 21. And just for one more try, God says, don't forget this, John. Write this one down. The spirit and the bride say, come. And you can drink freely. Isaiah 55 and verse 1, Isaiah says, come and drink and buy without money. The last day of the feast, Jesus says in John 7, 37, whosoever is thirsty, let him come and drink from the waters of life that I provide. Whoever drinks of these waters, they will thirst again. But the ones that drink of the water that I provide will never thirst again. No, a spring will well up in them flowing to everlasting life. John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus says, you're invited. And he sent out invitation after invitation. And the sad news is most people in the world will miss the party. But it won't be heaven's fault. Jesus has invited everyone. He's calling everybody so that they might come. At the end of our services, we typically extend what we call the invitation. We we invite people through a song to think about the things that they've heard and to respond. You know, the book of Revelation is filled with music. It's the most musical book. It's the loudest book in the New Testament. But here's one thing we can mark down in heaven. There will not be an invitation song. There won't be any while we stand and sing and give you one more chance to repent or one more chance to respond. No, if we shut God out on this final invitation, the door will be shut to us forever. And so the spirit and the bride, they invite and they say, come now. Here's the last one. Tampering with the word of God is costly. You might imagine that as John was getting to the end, somebody says, you know, I think John should have ended it this way. Or maybe John should have added some things in. But John warns us in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I solemnly warn and testify that whoever adds to these things, I'll add to him the plagues. Going back to this Exodus type of terminology, the plagues written in this book. And whoever takes away, I'll take away his part out of the holy city and cut off his access to the tree of life. John says, don't tamper with the message. Somebody long before me has made this observation and I've heard Neil make it before, but I've heard this in gospel meetings for a long time that this is interesting. At the beginning of the Bible, Deuteronomy four and verse two, God says, don't add to the word and don't take away. And Proverbs thirty five and God says every word of God proves true. Don't add to his words lest he reproves you and you be found a liar. Don't change it. And then right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, God says, don't add to the word. Don't change it. If you do, you'll be punished. In summary, God says, I've given you the word as I want you to have it. Don't change it. Now, God used man to write the Bible. He did. All scriptures, God breathed. But God brought men along through the Holy Spirit and told them what to write down, guided them along as they wrote these words. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. But we don't have God's permission to change the message. And don't you know some people would like to? I don't just mean change the Bible as a whole. I mean revelation in specific. There are people, bookshelves throughout the world. Not only do people try to add to the Bible, but there are books on the book of Revelation which try to correct the book of Revelation. John was talking about this. And John said this, but he meant this. They defy the very thing that he closes the book with by adding to and changing his words. And maybe we would never go through with a pen or a marker in our Bible and say, I don't like this. I'm going to put this in. I don't like that. I'm going to change it to this. But maybe in our minds, 
There are things that we don't like that God has said or things that challenge us that we try to stray away from. John says you don't get to do that. If you don't like what God says about worship or about marriage or about church organization or about fasting or about loving your neighbor or about forgiveness, John says you don't get to change it. You should change. I heard a story about a woman one time. Some folks were doing a campaign and they were at a carnival or some sort of fair. And she said, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. And the preacher said, oh, yes, you do. And she said, no, you don't. I can show you in the Bible. He said, no, I can show you in the Bible. She says, well, why don't you show me the passage that says you have to be baptized in order to be saved? He said, do you have a Bible? She said, I do. Turn it to Mark 16. He did the same thing you would have done. Turn to Mark 16 and you read in your own Bible, Mark 16, 15 and 16. And here's what she read. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then she closed her Bible. He said, there's more. You didn't read verse 16. She says, it's not there. He said, what do you mean? She opened her Bible and it wasn't there. She said, oh, I ripped it out. And while we might not ever be that bold to just rip out something that we don't like, we don't have God's permission to turn away from the things that make us uncomfortable. Our response to hard biblical truths should not be that can't be what it means. Our response should be, I can't stay this way. I can't be this way. I've got to change and be the person that God wants me to be. If we add to it, he'll add the plagues. If we take away from it. He'll take away our part out of the holy city. What we do is we confront the biblical text or as it confronts us to say, God, the things that I'm doing well, the things that I'm doing right, continue to encourage me in those things. And God, please show me speedily the things that I'm doing wrong so that I can make the necessary changes. And so I won't be ashamed that you're coming, but I might welcome it. And that's what John says in verse 20. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And he ends by reminding us he's filled with grace. Revelation 22, 21. All of the Bible is important, especially the last page. Whatever John doesn't include that hasn't been said before just simply won't be said. The Bible is not a book to where you get to the end and you close it and you say, "Okay, I know all of that stuff already. I'm done. It's a book that says you've got to come back and read it again. And as John closes out Revelation, he just echoes some of the things you've been reading throughout the entire Bible. The curse will be removed. The doers and the obedient are blessed by God. It says, I can't understand Revelation. You can get these lessons. If you do what God says, you'll be blessed. Don't add to God's word. Don't change it. Don't worship anybody else but God. Let the word of God change you. And when you do that, heaven is inviting. God is saying, you can come and you can do so freely. John says in verse 17 of Revelation 22, you can take and drink of the waters of life freely. That's true. Maybe tonight somebody needs to obey the gospel. God doesn't want any money from anybody. He doesn't want anything you have. He doesn't need anything you have, but he wants everything you've got. God wants you in totality to surrender your life to him. Salvation won't cost you anything monetarily, but it'll cost you everything spiritually. God says, hand over your life to me. And if you do it, I'll write your name in the book of life. And you'll be at the great feast that John describes throughout the book. If you need to respond tonight, if you need to repent of any sin tonight or need prayers of encouragement, we stand ready to assist you. Bryce is going on to encourage us. Come now as together we stand and sing.